the African History Network, the African History Network, and our YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotep, I-M-H-O-T-E-P. It is Monday, March 21st, 2022, and we are live. Welcome to the African History Network show. So we know today was a historic day. We saw day one of the confirmation hearing of the first African-American woman nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. And uh, I watched a lot of the uh, hearing today. And she only spoke at the end. You had this is the Senate Judiciary uh, Committee, and you had all the senators, both Democrat and Republican, um, making their opening statements. Okay, so we're going to give you um, a, a recap of what happened today, uh, day number one. We'll give you a recap of what happened today and some of the cheap attacks that some of the Republican senators. Uh, made against uh, Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson and trying to smear her record, etc. cetera. Uh, we saw Lindsey Graham, uh, who was upset about uh, Judge uh, J. Michelle Childs from South Carolina, who was in the top three but did not get the nomination. And uh, we saw um, Senator uh, Tim Cotton from Arkansas. We saw tax uh, from Senator Josh Hawley as well, Senator Marsha Blackburn, of um of uh tennessee also so we'll we'll, we'll get we'll do a recap of that okay um first I, I i want to deal with this story dealing with um wells fargo okay i have not been able to get to this story i saw the report from bloomberg news from um march 11th is a huge, uh, huge report from Bloomberg News, and I've been reading through it. I printed it out, and it's 23 pages, okay? And this deals with uh, Wells Fargo rejected half of its black applicants in mortgage refinancing boom, okay? Uh, Bloomberg did this analysis, and we're going to talk about this. This is an article from... Um, Fortune.com that I read. I read a number of different articles on this. Fortune.com also has a really good synopsis of this and how this impacts African-American wealth as well. How this impacts African-American wealth. Uh, Thegrio.com has a piece picked up from uh, by Yahoo News. Wells Fargo turned down over half of blacks seeking home refinance loans. Okay. And we're going to talk about this and how this impacts African-American wealth as well. Uh, we'll talk about Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson. Also, uh, give you a recap of what took place today and do a little fact checking about uh, the comments from uh, it was Senator, which Senator was this? Uh, Senator Josh Hawley, of all people, the insurrection supporter, Josh Hawley from Missouri. Uh, Judge, Judge Jackson has a pattern of letting child porn offenders off the hook for their appalling crimes, both as a judge and a policymaker. OK, we will do a little fact check on little Joshy there. Uh, but once again, you see these cheap attacks from Republicans. Once again, you see these cheap attacks from uh, Republicans and she's more qualified than any of these Republican senators who are uh, challenging her record either, especially um, somebody like uh, uh, Ted Cruz, okay? Especially a little, a little punk like Ted Cruz. All right, 
and and then on Sunday show, I did not get a chance to uh, get to the Vicksburg, Mississippi massacre of 1874. We're going to talk about that because that involves uh, this is during Reconstruction, and this involves attacking using violence to attack African Americans uh, to keep us from engaging in politics. All right. And this deals this dealt with forcing the duly elected African-American sheriff named Peter Crosby out of office. These were white domestic terrorists, the White League that did this. OK, we're going to talk about the Vicksburg, Mississippi massacre of December 7th, 1874 during Reconstruction. And I also, ta also talked about this in my uh, online class uh, I did on Sunday from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. All right, now on the African History Network show, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world, because right now it's correct your own behavior. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you I and mean, get away with is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you've been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. All right, I want to go to uh, th this piece here from uh, Fortune.com, from Fortune.com. Uh, and this is dealing with the analysis from Bloomberg, Bloomberg News, that uh, came out, the analysis from Bloomberg News came out March 11th. This piece here from, well, uh, from uh, Fortune.com, Wells Fargo rejected nearly half of their black homeowners refinancing applications. This piece from fortune.com is from March 16th, 2022. Now this deals with African-Americans who already had mortgages who were trying to refinance their mortgages and get a lower interest rate. Okay. This is what this is dealing with. This was it. This is not African-Americans trying to get home mortgages. This is those who already have home mortgages. So if we look at this piece, we're going to clip one, uh, uh, Shakita, uh, in just a second here from, uh, clip one is from uh, WJZY Channel 46 out of Charlotte, North Carolina. We'll go on that in just a second. So if we look at this piece here, um, what is this here? Hold on, let me pull this up. Okay, if we look at this article from uh, 14.0, com um, mortgage this mortgage rates hit an all-time low during the coronavirus pandemic giving homeowners the chance to refinance their interest rates on their mortgages refinance and ultimately lower their long-term interest costs ultimately lower their long-term interest costs however not everyone, had the same level of access. However, not everyone had the same level of access uh, to this once in a lifetime opportunity. Only 47% of African-American homeowners who submitted refinance applications in 2020 were approved by Wells Fargo, only 47%, as opposed to 72% 
of white homeowners who submitted refinance applications to Wells Fargo in 2020. This is based upon the analysis from Bloomberg News published on March 11th, 2022. Now, Wells Fargo is the third largest um, bank. Okay, Wells Fargo is the third largest bank in the United States by assets. They were the only bank that rejected that rejected more African American applicants for refinancing their home mortgages. They were the only applicant that rejected more African American applicants than it accepted. Now, while applicants had higher approval rates at all major lenders, well, I'm sorry, while white applicants had higher approval rates at all major lenders, Wells Fargo in particular lagged behind other major lenders in their approval rates for minority applicants. So when you go through and analyze this, and we're going to look at the response from um, one of the executives at, um, at Wells Fargo, uh, they gave an explanation, uh, Mr. Turner, uh, I think it was. We're going to look at his response, but his response doesn't jive with uh, what everything in total. Paul Turner, Senior Vice President of Consumer Lending, Executive, Executive Communications at Wells Fargo. Now, overall, 71% of African-American refinancing applicants in the U.S. were approved in 2020 according to Bloomberg analysis. That's all lenders combined. Overall, 71% African-American home mortgage uh, refinancing applicants were approved. But at Wells Fargo, only 47% were approved, okay? So Wells Fargo is the third largest uh, bank in the United States by assets and they were the sole lender. They were the only lender that rejected more African-American applicants than it accepted. So to, 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 to quote Keith Sweat, something, something just ain't right. Uh, we'll, we'll continue this on the other side of the break. Listen to the African History Network show right here on 19 AM, the Superstation, the Future Radio. I'm Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. The work that I do is larger than the fashion industry, it's larger than the art world. And I believe that I was born to bring newness into this world. I'm Kaima McIntyre, I'm 24 years old and I'm an artist. I create everything from paintings to jewelry design, metaphysical jewelry to be specific, and fashion design. The only reason why my prom dress went viral is because people needed it. Within a few days of going viral, Notori Naughton reached out to me and she's like, I saw your dress, can you make me a dress? I was equally as shocked to be asked by a celebrity to design their dress at the age of 17. That's just one person and the list just continues to go on to Janet Jackson, to Tyra Banks. It really hits home. That means that the discussion is happening on the grounds in real time. 
History Network show we do with current events and history and politics, education, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. Unfortunately, many people confuse what racism is. Racism is a power structure. It was laws and policies that put us in this predicament. It's going to be laws and policies that take us out. And when you control the radius of a man or woman's thoughts, you can control the compass of his or her actions because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. We have it all on 910 AM Superstation. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM Superstation, the future radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. It is Monday, March 21st, 2022, and we are live calling numbers 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 is the calling number if you have a question or comment. Okay, um, right before the break, we, we were talking about this uh, story that came out. I saw this when it came out. I posted about it. On our Facebook fan page, the African History Network, last time I checked, it got over a thousand likes. Um, and a lot of people were commenting on it. And this was an analysis done by Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg News. Um, Wells Fargo rejected half of its black applicants in mortgage refinancing boom. Fewer than half of black applicants were approved by the biggest uh, bank mortgage lender. Okay. And uh, the, 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 so you can check that out. The original piece from, uh, Wells Fargo It's long. I printed it out. It's 23 pages. Um, it's long. So just be prepared, but I'm looking at the article, which gets straighter to the point, uh, from fortune.com. And this piece, we're going to clip on just a second. Shikita. This piece from fortune is called uh, Wells Fargo rejected nearly half of their black homeowners refinancing applications. Uh, so if we go back uh, to this now, Wells Fargo is the third largest bank in the United States by assets. And they were the only bank lender that rejected more African-American applicants than uh, it accepted. Okay. Now, American homeowners faced more refinancing uh, denials than other minority applicants, such as Hispanic homeowners and Asian American homeowners, who had approval rates from Wells Fargo at 53% for Hispanic homeowners and 53% for Hispanic homeowners and 67% for um asian american homeowners okay however paul turner who is the uh senior vice president of consumer lending executive communications at wells fargo paul turner disputes the analysis by bloomberg paul turner uh in a statement said that bloomberg's uh analysis their data the analysis of the data relied on an analysis designed to present a skewed picture of our lending efforts, a skewed picture of our lending efforts and ignored Wells Fargo's quote, strong track record of lending to African-American homeowners, end quote. But how is it, the question I ask is how is it that it appears that Bloomberg got it right for all the other lenders, but got it wrong only for Wells Fargo. Okay. 
Now, what were the acceptance odds at other lenders? Okay, so let's look at this here. J.P. Morgan Chase accepted 81% of refinancing applications from African-American homeowners in 2020, compared with 90% of refinancing applications for white applicants. Okay, J.P. Morgan, 81%. Wells Fargo, 47% of African-Americans. Once again, this is not people applying for a mortgage. This is people applying to refinance a mortgage they already have. Bank of America, okay? Bank of America approved 66% of its African-American applicants uh, who were applying to refinance their home mortgage. And Bank of America approved 78% of their white applicants. Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage LLC, that's here in Detroit. Rocket Mortgage approved 79% of African-American applicants trying to refinance their home mortgage and approved 86% of white, uh, of white applicants. While most lenders displayed a, about a 10% different, about a 10% difference in approval rates between white and African-American households, Wells Fargo was the outlier based upon the analysis from Bloomberg. Wells Fargo rejected 24% more African-American applicants than white applicants. So if the analysis by Wells Fargo, if the analysis by Bloomberg is wrong, according to Paul Turner, how is it that Bloomberg got it right for all the other banks, but got it wrong for Wells Fargo. Well, this is causing some senators, U.S. senators, to ask questions also. I want to go to this clip here from, uh, this is clip number one. Now, this is from, um, this is from WJ. Here in six, I called to investigate a bank. Just a second. Okay, this is from, uh. WJZY Channel 46 in Charlotte, North Carolina. Wells Fargo backlash. Let's go to this clip. But first, new here at Sticks, a call to investigate a bank with big ties to the Queen City. This is a big investigation going on. 11 U.S. senators are requesting right now federal regulators to investigate Wells Fargo's treatment of African-American homeowners. Queen City News Chief Business Correspondent Taylor Young joining us now here in the studio. Taylor, lawmakers are now questioning if Wells Fargo is breaking the law. Yeah, that's right, Alicia. A recent analysis has caught the eyes of U.S. senators in Washington. It shows that Wells Fargo rejected more than half of its black applicants looking to refinance their homes in 2020. At the height of the pandemic, millions of Americans took advantage of historically low interest rates by refinancing their mortgage loans. Recent findings by Bloomberg show not all people were given the same opportunity to do so. It's just, it's a lot to grasp, and I'm still taking it all in. An analysis of federal mortgage data shows Wells Fargo rejected more than half of its black applicants. The data shows the minority group received the lowest approval rate, while 72% of white homeowners were given the okay. So this shows that we are systematically supposed to have things harder, and it shows Wells Fargo being the third, third largest bank and, and being the, the least to actually approve 
loans for people that actually are qualified for it, it's disgusting. Lawmakers say the analysis raises questions about whether the bank complies with fair housing and lending laws. Queen City News reached out to Wells Fargo asking for a response. A spokesperson for the bank said both the letter and analysis ignored critical information about the company's lending to black homeowners. In a statement, the bank said the fact is Wells Fargo helped more black homeowners refinance their mortgages in 2020 than any other largest banks. Action NC, a local advocacy group fighting for economic justice, says Bloomberg's findings bring light to the reality of what African-Americans have faced for decades. Things must change. Now it's no longer a have to, will to. They must and they are going to change because the dirt is being aired out. Now, a spokesperson with Wells Fargo said they are reviewing that letter signed by lawmakers and will be providing their own analysis. Alicia? Taylor, thank you for that update. Okay, so that is from, okay, that's from um, Channel 46 out of uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, WJZY. Uh, That's on their YouTube channel. Wells Fargo backlash. Okay, that's from Queen City's new Queen City News, WJZY Channel 46 out of Charlotte, North Carolina. So, um, and that clip is from March 18th, 2022. If we go back to this piece here from uh fortune.com. So this caused, you know, going through and, and analyzing all this, this caused me to have more questions. And this ties to the racial wealth gap. This has real life consequences. Okay. Uh, so wealth now see something else that stuck out here. Wealthy African American Wells Fargo applicants still had poor approval odds. So Paul Turner, senior vice president of consumer lending executive communications at uh Wells Fargo, has some explaining to do. Okay, so Wells Fargo application approval rates for the lowest income white families earning a maximum of $63,000 per year were nearly identical to high income African-American families earning a minimum of $168,000 a year. So going through analyzing all this, and I looked at different articles on this. I looked at the analysis from Bloomberg. Fortune.com has a really good article which summarizes the 23 pages that Bloomberg had. Because there's a lot of that's a lot of ink I wasted printing this stuff. Well, well, I have a subscription to Bloomberg, so I just can't remember my login to log in here. Because I I paid Bloomberg money each month and I just paid them $39 for the subscription after the trial ran out. So anyway, um the Grill also has the Grill.com also has a piece on this from March 18th, 2022. But when we look at wealthy African-American homes, their approval rate was was almost identical to low income white families. Wells Fargo's application approval rates for the lowest income white families earning a maximum of $63,000 per year were nearly identical to African American to high income African American families earning a minimum of $168,000 per year. But when African American and white families had the same
low income status of a $63,000 maximum annual income, white families were almost twice as likely to be approved. So regardless of uh, high income, low income, it, the white applicants had much higher approval ratings. So, so Wells Fargo has more explaining than to do. Now, there's a, a lawsuit that was filed, and New York Times has an article about this I was reading today. Uh, we're going to talk about this on tomorrow's show because I, I can only do so much in one show. There's a uh, African-American homeowner named Aaron Braxton who's uh, suing Wells Fargo. This is in uh, California, who's suing Wells Fargo claiming discrimination. A lawsuit filed in federal court in California says uh, that Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo uh, Bank's lending algorithms draw on racist history to deny refinancings at a higher rate for African-American borrowers. Okay, we're going to talk about that on tomorrow's show. Okay, that, that's an article from today in the New York Times. We'll deal with that on tomorrow's show. This is dealing with the, right here, this is dealing with the analysis from Bloomberg that came out March 11th. So if we go back to this piece here from fortune.com and we're coming, oh, way past the break. I'm sorry. Uh, you listen to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation Future Radio. I'm Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Jeanette Davis is a well-established author with six published books. Black Survival in White America from Past History to the Next Century was published in 1995 and it delves into the history of African Americans before slavery up to contemporary times. The Great Divide Between Blacks and Whites was released in 2008 and her autobiography, Black Just Like My Mama, was published in 2010. Soulful Journey, The Business of Beings, was released in December 2021 and her two latest books, Echoes from the Heart, Love Throws Poetry, and Master Being Human were both published in January of 2022. Jeanette Davis' writings delve deeply into the psyche of black people from ancient to contemporary times. She cuts no corners and leaves no stones unturned in relating truth, letting the chips fall where they may on both African and European doorsteps. Order Jeanette Davis's books today at Amazon.com. Search for Jeanette Davis and get to know her work today. iRedify is a black-owned digital platform that showcases black and brown cultures and people. The books on the platform are written by African-American authors, Afro-Caribbean authors, African authors, and so much more. Kids 14 and under can read eBooks, listen to audiobooks, and complete learning activities. Kids can even write in the books digitally. Get unlimited access to everything on the platform for only $8.99 a month at iRedify.com. Sign up for your membership today. 910, the Superstation, Detroit's only African-American talk radio. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, Superstation, the Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. It is Monday. 
March 21st, 2022. And we are live. All right, we're going to wrap up this segment here, dealing with Wells Fargo. We'll talk about this some more tomorrow when I talk about the lawsuit filed out of uh, California um, that uh, that just happened. And uh, we're going to talk about Jessica Tanji Brown-Jackson here in just a minute. Okay, so if we go back to this piece, we're going to clip two uh, from NBC News here, uh, Shakita, in just a minute. Uh, if we go back to this piece here from uh, Fortune.com, because this ties together and deals with uh, the racial wealth gap as well. Okay, so we see that wealthy African-American Wells Fargo applicants to refinance home mortgages still had poor approval odds and even low income white people had a better approval rates than high income African-American households. Okay, so this helps to perpetuate the racial wealth gap. So the refinancing gap perpetuates the racial wealth disparity by limiting African-American access to resources that could relieve financial burdens. For example, the average, uh, the average finance reduced the, the average ref refinance reduced the borrower's monthly payment by $279 leading to a payment reduction uh, cumulatively of all those who refinance, leading to a payment reduction of $5.3 billion per year for all households that refinanced according to the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, okay? Now, African-American and minority borrowers were significantly more likely than white borrowers to miss housing payments due to financial distress during the coronavirus pandemic. While unemployed, uh, while unemployment decreased in most racial demographics between October and December of 2021, it increased almost 1% in the African-American community. All right, let me repeat that. While unemployment decreased in most racial demographics between October and December of 2021, it increased almost 1% in the African-American community. So we're dealing with other barriers to uh, gaining employment, even though you had in 2021, 6.4 million jobs created. We're, we're dealing with, many of us are dealing with other barriers getting to jobs, whether you deal with uh, transportation, whether you deal with uh, things like childcare, uh, all the types of things like this, or having to take care of a of an ailing uh, family member or, or what have you, with less liquidity and consistent income, with less liquidity and consistent income than other racial groups. African-American mortgage owners were statistically more likely to need the decline in interest rates that comes with refinancing as well as the reduction in the borrower's monthly payment. Okay, now, widespread discrimination from the largest, uh, widespread discrimination from the largest banks uh, in the country. Uh, we continue to see this as well. Now, other banks such as Bank of America and JP Morgan Chase have also come under fire. For example, uh, Bank of America, now this is before Ryan Coogler. For example, Bank of America was fined $335 million for charging over 200,000 African-American and Hispanic borrowers 
with higher interest rates and fees in 2011, according to the U.S. Department of Justice. In 2017, um, in, in 2017, J.P. Morgan Chase paid over $55 million in a settlement for charging approximately 106,000 minority borrowers higher rates than their white counterparts, according to the U.S. Department of Justice. Now, uh, when we look at banking on accountability, now you, you have banks like J.P. Morgan Chase, um, even Wells Fargo, who have made uh, pledges to invest money in the African-American community as well as entrepreneurs. So in an effort to close the racial wealth gap, J.P. Morgan Chase made a $30 billion racial equity commitment in October 2020, now this is 2020, and you had the protests dealing with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, things like this. Now this was after that summer, but still you had you know those those protests going on, and you had um, a lot of corporations making these pledges, making these racial justice pledges. Okay, so J.P. Morgan Chase made a 30 billion dollar racial equity commitment in October 2020, and has since invested J.P. Morgan Chase has since invested $100 million in 14 African-American, Hispanic, and Latino-owned or led institutions and committed $350 million in donations to grow African-American, Latino, and women-owned small businesses, okay? Now, Bank of America tripled its affordable home ownership commitment to $15 billion through the year 2025 to assist low wealth home borrowers and advance racial equity in February, 2021, okay? Bank of America also raised their commitment from $1 billion to $1.25 billion over five years to support investments to address racial justice, advocacy, and equality for people and communities of color, including those of Asian, Asian descent, in March, this this was in March of 2021 with Bank of America. In 2017, Wells Fargo announced a $60 billion lending commitment to create at least 250,000 African-American homeowners by the year 2027. So we're five, uh, we're five years away from 2027, February 2017, Wells Fargo announced a $60 billion lending commitment to create at least 250,000 African-American homeowners by 2027. Wells Fargo is over one third of the way there, according to Paul Turner with uh, Wells Fargo. Uh, Paul Turner told fortune.com through the end of 2021, we have helped 81,756 African-American families become homeowners with $21.4 billion in financing since the commitment was made in 2017. Now, Wells Fargo also alleges that they are pursuing a $185 billion in diverse lending commitments, which references their $60 billion African-American lending commitment and their $125 billion Hispanic lending commitment, which was announced in 2015. So um, 
there's going to be you have senators calling for an investigation into Wells Fargo and this disparity when it comes to refinancing uh, home mortgages for African-Americans, because once again, out of all the lenders, um, Wells Fargo is the only lender who rejected uh, more African-American uh uh, applications to refinance home mortgages than they actually accepted. They only accepted 47%. No other, no other home lender did that. JP Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Rocket Mortgage, nobody else had numbers like that. All right. So check this out at fortune.com. But all this money floating around, all this racial justice money, we need to get that money also. Like Frank Lucas said, I just watched American Gangster this past weekend. We need to get that money. Okay. But this racial justice money floating around, we need to get that money. All right. I want to go to this story here, uh, this next story, dealing with Katanji Brown Jackson. So this was day one. I watched a lot of the coverage today. I actually got up early, uh, or early for me. Uh, I actually got up because I got up about 9 a.m. I wanted to make sure I was, I was watching the coverage on MSNBC and the Black News Channel. MSNBC kept them with Ukraine so much. I just watched a lot of it on the Black News Channel. But uh, <laughs> so we saw now uh, today, most of the um, we, she only spoke. They went on for almost four hours, but she only spoke at the end and introduced herself. Um, th today, you had senators who were making their opening statements. OK, so we're going to uh, deal with this on the other side of the break. We'll give you a recap of uh, what happened today. And we saw that um, you had some GOP senators, Ted Cruz, a lot of Trump supporters, Ted Cruz, spineless Lindsey Graham, uh, Josh Hawley uh, out of Missouri, Tom Cotton out of Arkansas, Marsha Blackburn out of, out of Tennessee, up there trying to relitigate, you know, uh, the Kavanaugh hearings and things like this. Okay. We'll get, we'll do with this on the other side of the break. Listen to the African history network show on Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. The work that I do is larger than the fashion industry It's larger than the art world. And I believe that I was born to bring newness into this world. I'm Kaima McIntyre. I'm 24 years old and I'm an artist. I create everything from paintings to jewelry design, metaphysical jewelry to be specific, and fashion design. The only reason why my prom dress went viral is because people needed it. Within a few days of going viral, Notori Naughton reached out to me and she's like, I saw your dress, can you make me a dress? I was equally as shocked to be asked by a celebrity to design their dress at the age of 17. That's just one person and the list just continues to go on to Janet Jackson, to Tyra Banks. It really hits home. That means that the discussion is happening on the grounds in real time. Jeanette Davis is a well-established author with six published books. Black Survival in White America from Past History to the Next Century was published in 1995 and it delves into the history of African Americans before slavery up to contemporary times. The Great Divide Between Blacks and Whites was released in 2008 and her autobiography, Black Just Like My Mama, was published in 2010. Soulful Journey, 
The Business of Beings, was released in December 2021 and her two latest books, Echoes from the Heart, Love Throws Poetry, and Master Being Human, were both published in January of 2022. Jeanette Davis' writings delve deeply into the psyche of black people from ancient to contemporary times. She cuts no corners and leaves no stones unturned in relating truth, letting the chips fall where they may on both African and European doorsteps. Order Jeanette Davis's books today at Amazon.com. Search for Jeanette Davis and get to know her work today. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, the Superstation of Future Radio. All right. Um, I want to let me let me do this. Uh, before we go to Justin Tanji Brown Jackson, we're going to clip two in just a second, Shakita. Um, there was the dealing with our last story, the Grio.com had a um a good article also. Uh, and I want to highlight that because they're African-American owned and operated. Um, and fortune is not. But uh, the, the Griot had a good piece also. Um, Wells Fargo turned down over half of uh, black seeking. Let me pull this up here. Hold on. Okay. Wells Fargo turned down over half of black seeking home refinance loans report fines. This is from March 18th. 2022 by the com staff. Now, some of the things they talk about in here, uh, we've dealt with before. Okay. And somebody said the cash app link is not working. Uh, we're going to post that here again. Dollar sign the AHN show through cash app. Dollar sign the AHN show through cash app. Also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. Um, they talk about the uh, report from the Brookings Institute where you had um, African-American homes valued at $156 billion less than comparable white homes. Okay. Um, let me see. Let's see. Can we go to this here? Let's do this. Let's um, hold on just a second. I need to close out some of these tabs here. Okay. This Ukraine stuff, I can close that out. And just a second. Okay. So uh, we've dealt with this before $156 billion um, in African-American homes are valued at less than comparable white homes. And then also you have the study from uh, Citigroup Bank, the study from Citigroup Bank that deals with uh, the U.S. economy has lost sixteen trillion dollars from the year twenty from the year two thousand to the year twenty twenty. Okay, but if we look at this here, um, okay, the Brookings Institute conducted a study in twenty eighteen that found uh, that the average uh, African American owned home was valued at forty eight thousand dollars less than the average white home uh, accounting for $156 billion in missing black wealth. That's real money. Andre Perry um, headed up that uh, study. Okay, so we've talked about this before. Okay, so all this is connected 
and this has real life consequences. And then if you if you look at the uh, study here from CBS News, and I actually did a uh, uh, I did, did a video dealing with this. Um, the, the the study from CBS the study from uh, Citigroup Bank shows how racism negatively impacts everybody all throughout the country regardless of race. Okay, uh, read this article here from City uh, from CBS News. Racism has cost the U.S. sixteen trillion dollars. Citigroup fines. Okay, now politics is the legal distribution of scarce wealth, power, and resources and the writing of law, statutes, ordinances, amendments, and treaties, their adoption, interpretation, and enforcement. And politics impacts every aspect of our lives, all right? So when you look at this here, America could have been $16 trillion richer if not for inequities, if not for inequities in education, housing, wages, and business investment, if not for inequities in wages, inequities in education, housing, wages, and business investment between African-Americans and white Americans, not for the past 246 years, but just over a 20-year period of time from the year 2000 to the year 2020, okay? This is how politics impacts every aspect of our lives because, and, and politics regulates this, laws and policies regulate this and also shape the economy as well. The study released in September 2020 by Citigroup Bank is the latest in a body of research that attempts to quantify the latest in a body of research that attempts to quantify the economic impact of systemic racism. Citigroup arrived at a $16 trillion figure after estimating it. They looked at three categories. African-American workers have lost $113 billion in potential wages over the past two decades, not 246 years. You don't have to go back to slavery. Just look at from the year 2000 to 2020. African-American workers have lost $113 billion in potential wages over those two decades because they could not get a college degree. The housing market lost $218 billion in sales because African-American home, uh, home mortgage applicants could not get home loans. $218 billion. We don't have to go back to the GI Bill 1944, 1945. Just look at 2000 to 2020. About $13 trillion in business revenue never flowed into the U.S. economy because African-American entrepreneurs could not get access to bank loans. So then they go on to talk about how if you close these loopholes, okay, the U.S. economy could have $5 trillion in gross domestic product could increase by $5 trillion in GDP over the next five years if these gaps and others were closed today. So what this is showing is how racism negatively impacts everybody and it benefits everybody if you level the playing field, but you have to change the laws and policies. All right, you have to change the laws and policies that create these structural inequities in the first place. So read this from um, uh, CBS News also. Racism has cost the U.S. $16 trillion Citigroup fines. Okay, those watching on Facebook and YouTube, 
keep watching. Uh, we're going to uh, deal with Katanji Brown Jackson, uh, Judge Jackson, uh, here in just a second. Um, and we're, we're going to uh, blackamericaweb.com had a piece they picked up from uh, the Associated Press, which deals with takeaways. Judge Katanji Jackson uh, makes history GOP vows no spectacle. And then you have um, some Republican senators who are making fools out of themselves today, which they normally do, but they were showing off today. Uh, GOP venting 2024 auditions, auditioning for president 2024, and the historic moment highlights from day one of Ketanji Brown Jackson hearing. All right. Uh, if you like this type of information, be sure to register for the online classes I teach on Saturdays and Sundays. On Saturday is ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Uh, this is a 10-week online class that I teach. And this class is on uh, March 26th. This is a 10-week online class I teach. We deal with thousands of years of history and what leads up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. So we have this at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. The information is there. I'm going to post the link here again. As soon as you register, you can start watching content. You can watch the class uh, we just did uh, this past weekend. The class is on sale $60, regular $130. You have full access to it even after the class is over. So a year from now, you can go back and watch the entire course. And then we also have a bundle pack where you can register for both classes uh, that I teach for only $100. It's a $260 value. If you've taken any of my online classes in the past, email me at ahnshow at africanhistorynetwork.com, ahnshow at africanhistorynetwork.com, and you'll get a 50% discount uh, on the bundle pack. All right, those watching on Facebook and YouTube, keep watching. We're going to keep going for uh, a few more minutes. We also have the information uh, in the thread of the broadcast here that's uh, running. Uh, right now, it's correct. Wrong behavior is not over till we win Wakanda forever, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. All right, stand by. Let me disconnect this call with the radio station. Okay, let's keep going here. Um, Want to deal with? Okay. So, and I need to cue this clip up here also from uh, NBC News. Stand by. Let me cue this clip up right quick. And uh, we're going to jump into this. We'll talk about this some more tomorrow because the questions will actually take the questioning actually starts on Tuesday. Today was um, them introducing uh, it was opening statements from uh, the senators. OK. All right. OK, Rona. Okay, thanks for your uh, support. Thanks for your donation, Rona. All right, stand by. Okay, can we can we get? Okay, we'll go to that in just a second. We have it queued up. All right, so let's uh, let's go to this here. So blackamericaweb.com uh, had uh, takeaways from uh, what happened in the Senate today, uh, Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, takeaways, Jessica Tanji Brown Jackson makes history, GOP vows no spectacle, 
Hold on. Um, history was made uh, Monday. The instant Jessica Tanji Brown Jackson appeared before the Senate Judiciary Committee, the first black woman nominated to the Supreme Court. President Joe Biden promised uh, he would choose uh, an African-American woman uh, for the job. And the 51-year-old Harvard-trained uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson emerged as an early favorite because she's already been confirmed by the Senate three previous times when you include her confirmation for the U.S. Uh, Sentencing Commission. She's already been approved three times. And in 2021, June 2021, when she was confirmed by the Senate, three Republicans voted for her, including... Senator Lindsey Graham, who today act like he didn't know who she was. Like she was like, okay, you voted for her last year, right? Uh, for the federal judge position. Uh, now you act like she's not qualified to be on the Supreme Court. Having won bipartisan support from the Senate a year ago to be an appellate court judge. Now, Democrats have the potential votes in the 50-50 Senate to confirm just Jackson to replace retiring Justice Stephen Breyer, um, even if all Republicans are opposed. Luckily, luckily, Senator Ben Ray Lewan of New Mexico has recovered from his stroke and is back in the Senate. Because in the Senate, you can't vote by proxy. You have to actually be there to vote. And he was out for probably about close to two months recovering because he had a stroke. So he came back early, I think it was early February. He came back early February, uh, I'm not sure, early March, early March, he came back to the Senate. So luckily, um, he's there and he can vote. So it's 50, okay? And Vice President Kamala Harris would be the tie-breaking vote. But if he were, if, if Senator Ben Ray Lewan of New Mexico was still out recovering from, uh, uh, a stroke, you would need one Republican to vote for it to get to 50. Okay, so I want to go to, uh, let me see something here. Okay. Uh, I, I want to go to this clip here from Deadline White House that gives a good summary of what happened today. Let's go to this clip. I hope that you will see how much I love our country and the Constitution and the rights that make us free. I stand on the shoulders of so many who have come before me, including Judge Constance Baker Motley, who was the first African-American woman to be appointed to the federal bench and with whom I share a birthday. And like Judge Motley, I have dedicated my career to ensuring that the words engraved on the front of the Supreme Court building, equal justice under law, are a reality and not just an ideal. That was Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, the first black woman nominated to the Supreme Court in its 233-year history, making her opening statements today on day one of her confirmation hearings. Her remarks capped off a day of opening statements from all 22 members of the Senate Judiciary Committee in what was likely a preview of the kind of questioning Judge Jackson can expect tomorrow and Wednesday. Republicans repeatedly brought up the rancor of the Kavanaugh hearings, 
And as they have for weeks now, Republican senators tried to portray Jackson as a radical who is soft on crime, pointing to her record on sentencing in child pornography cases. And that is despite the fact that her record mirrors that of a majority of other federal judges. Some Republicans have also questioned her defense of Guantanamo Bay detainees during her stint as a public defender, as if the right to a defense wasn't, in fact, a hallmark of the American legal system. Democrats today provided a rebuttal of sorts to those Republican attacks. There may be some who claim, without a shred of evidence, that you'll be a rubber stamp for this president. For these would-be critics, I have four words. Look at the record. She is before us on the basis of her own merit, not on the recommendation of a secretive right-wing donor operation, hiding behind anonymous multi-million dollar donations, and aimed at capturing the United States Supreme Court as if it were some 19th century railroad commission. Some have even claimed that you need to show your LSAT scores to determine whether you are a top legal mind. This is incredibly offensive and condescending. Looming over the hearing and shaping the Republican response to Jackson's nomination, the fact that Democrats appear to have the votes to confirm Jackson on their own and that her appointment will not change the ideological balance of the Supreme Court. Judge Jackson was before this very same committee just a year ago when she was nominated for the D.C. Circuit Court. During that process, three Republican senators, Lindsey Graham, Lisa Murkowski, and Susan Collins, voted along with every Democrat to confirm her. It remains to be seen if there are any Republicans willing to join Democrats and confirm Jackson to the nation's highest bench. Joining us now, Harry Littman, former Deputy Assistant Attorney General and former U.S. Attorney, who has clerked with two Supreme Court justices and prepped several judges for their confirmations. Also with us, Fatima Goss-Graves, President and CEO of the National Women's Law Center, and Derek Johnson, President and CEO of the NAACP. Um, I just want to take a moment to enjoy the history here, everyone. Before we delve into the swamp of the political back and forth, Fatima, I, I know that... Um, Fatima, I know that you were, you were smiling as we, we played that sound from Judge Jackson because it's been 233 years. <laughs> and today, the day arrived that a black woman has begun day one of her confirmation hearings to be on the Supreme Court. How do you think the history-making nature of this informs the proceedings that we're going to see unfold over the next couple days? Well, it was emotional to take it all in. I think we are all seeing exactly why she is the nominee. But hearing about her upbringing and life experience, seeing her parents in the room and and their looks of pride, and the fact that we are here in 2022 with this extraordinary woman who is so qualified and so credentialed, but also someone who has such clear integrity. I, I just think so many of us were really, really moved today. Yeah, I, I wonder, Derek, um, you know, because this is a historic nomination, because the Republican Party has been battling uh, the racism in, in, in the right wing, do you think it complicates their line of questioning as they move forward in the nomination process? Do you think that the dog whistles might have to be less explicit than they have been in prior uh, events, if you will? Well, I think they're going to continue with this course, the course of questioning that they've done with any appointee, particularly judicial appointee from this administration and even the Obama administration. 
I think some of them have more restraint than others. Uh, but you will find uh, the, 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 the Ted Cruz, uh, they have no restraints. The Josh Hobbs, they have no restraints because Dolphins and Whistle Policy, uh, 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 I'm sorry, not Dolphins Policy, the dog Whistle statements is what they live off of. That's how they raise money. It has nothing to do with our democracy. It has nothing to do with our qualification. It has nothing to do with integrity because they lack integrity. So they're going to continue down that line of questioning. It'll be interesting to see what Lindsey Graham does and others of his ilk in terms of making sure we have qualified individuals on the court where she is overly qualified to be on the Supreme Court. Harry, if you were advising Judge Jackson on what awaits her in the coming days, what, what would your guidance be in, in sort of prepping a Supreme Court nominee and this one in particular? You know, I think they telegraphed it pretty well. Of course, Holly and Cruz are going to throw out red meat lines, not even really directed against her, but in order to fundraise or further their own presidential candidacies. But I think a lot of the big possible attacks seem to have gone by the wayside today. The number one thing that you'll have to talk about is this supposed uh, charge that Hawley will make that she is soft on uh, not just not crime generally, but sexual predators. It really doesn't hold up. As you say, it's not just that she's in, a, in, in line with her district. She's in line with the country, and there are very special reasons why the sexual uh, offender uh, guidelines are out of, out of whack. But she'll have to counter with her overall record. But beyond that, the number one fact on both sides is she really does look like she's getting going to be confirmed. I thought that um, Graham's comments, Grassley's comments essentially telegraphed them. So what she needs to do is sort of stay in her game, not take the bait, answer things uh, directly, not get into the arguments about should you expand the court or things that really have to do with the administration and not with the nominee? And basically, it's, you know, she, she is coasting slightly downhill, and I think she just has to continue on that path. All right, I'm going to coasting slightly downhill. Okay, we'll, we'll monitor that, Harry. Um, I want to I draw your attention to context that Senator Amy Klobuchar offered today in terms of her nomination. Yep. Yes, the ideological balance of the court is not going to change. But let us not diminish the importance of having someone like this on the court at this precise moment in time. Let's just listen to what Senator Klobuchar had to say earlier today. As we are here to confirm a new justice for his seat, I urge my colleagues to remember his words about how the court must consider the effect of its actions on people's lives, how it must be able to see the real people at the other end of its rulings. Like Americans who are one Supreme Court decision away from losing their health insurance or one court decision away from the ability to make their own health care choices or the dreamers who could lose the only country they've ever known, or the people who waited for hours in the rain one recent election day in Wisconsin, wearing garbage bags and homemade masks in the middle of what would soon become a global pandemic just to cast a ballot, just to exercise their constitutional right to vote. The court decides cases with life-changing consequences for people. Uh, Fatima, that seems to be a plea to recognize the humanity that is embedded in some of these landmark decisions the Supreme Court has on its docket that are ahead of it, right? And 
the thing we kind of refer refer to constantly in terms of Judge Jackson's background is her her, her role and record as a public defender, her understanding of what goes in to a court case from the other side, not the prosecutorial side, but the side of the person who has to serve the sentence. How critical do you think that is in this moment, given what the court has uh, to rule on in the coming months and years ahead? You know, the law can sometimes seem removed from everyday lives, but the truth is it actually deeply affects people's lives, whether it is whether or not they can have a job, whether or not they have to work in the as a frontline worker on a pandemic, or whether or not they are the ones that determine whether or not they're going to have children as the court is considering this year Roe versus Wade. And it's making that decision without a Black woman on the Supreme Court at all, despite the fact that Black women have the highest rates of maternal mortality in this country. One of these things that this nomination, I think, is revealing for all of us is what a mistake it has been not to have a court as diverse as it could be. Judge Jackson's experience as a former federal public defender means that we will finally have someone back on the court who has direct experience representing low-income federal criminal defendants. That will make a difference in the court's decisions. It'll make a difference in the types of conversations that the justices have with each other. It, it's exciting to think about making that sort of progress as well. All right. So that was from um, Deadline White House. That was um, Alex Wagner sitting in for uh, Nicole Wallace today. Uh, so it was a good segment. Uh, you heard uh, President and CEO of the National Women's Law Center, uh, Fatima Goss-Graves, uh, President and CEO of the NAACP, Derek Johnson, and former U.S. Attorney Harry Littman. Okay. Uh, they won the panel. All right. So I want to go to, uh, I showed you the piece from BlackAmericaWeb.com. You can check that out. They picked this up from the Associated, Pre Associated Press. Uh, takeaways. Takeaways, Jessica Tanji Brown Jackson makes history. GOP vows no spectacle. That's from blackamericaweb.com. Um, if we look quickly here at, uh, well, let's look at the, I want to look at the updates from uh, the Washington Post first. Then we'll go to this piece from NBC News that deals with, uh, uh, the Republicans attacking her today, the, G the, the GOP venting. So if we look at the uh, updates from Washington Post, and then I want to look at this quick fact check from New York Times. Katanji Brown Jackson vows to be a neutral arbiter if confirmed to Supreme Court. Um, she gave opening statements. She said uh, in her opening statement, she said, I, I decide cases from a neutral posture. Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey said uh, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson's nomination helps diversify the federal courts like never before. Um, Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri Republican signals he will press uh, Judge Jackson on sentencing in child pornography cases. He seems obsessed with child pornography cases. Um, so Judge Katanji Brown Jackson told the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee she will work to defend the U.S. Constitution 
uh, in American democracy if she is confirmed to the Supreme Court in her opening remarks to the panel on the first of four days of confirmation hearings. She said, quote, I've been a judge for nearly a decade now, and I take that responsibility uh, and my duty to be independent very seriously. I decide cases from a neutral posture. I evaluate the facts and I interpret and apply the law to the facts of the cases before me without fear or favor consistent with my judicial oath, end quote. Now, the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Senator uh, Dick Durbin, uh, Richard uh, J. Durbin, Democrat from Illinois, he said it was a proud day uh, for America as the panel considered the nomination of Judge Jackson, a historic choice by President Joe Biden, as he moves to fulfill his pledge to put the first African-American woman on the Supreme Court in its 233-year history. The hearing began at 11 a.m. and Judge Jackson sat through open statements from 22 Republicans and Democrats, Democratic senators on the committee for nearly four hours. Senator Durbin set the tone for Democrats praising uh, Jackson's record of excellence and integrity and dedication to the rule of law. Republicans said they would press uh, Judge Jackson on her judicial philosophy, but also complained about but also complained about how Democrats and liberal groups had treated the judicial nominees of President Donald Trump. Well, because a lot of because a lot of them were unqualified. That's why. OK, a lot of them were unqualified. Not just on the Supreme Court, people like Brett Kavanaugh and and Amy Coney Barrett. OK, but then you look at uh, the nominees for the federal bench. Many of them were unqualified. That's why. But Democrat, uh, Republicans wanted to relitigate the Kavanaugh hearings and all types of nonsense like this. So on Tuesday and Wednesday, committee members will question Judge Jackson. Thursday will feature testimony from outside witnesses. Senator John Cornyn, Republican from Texas, told Judge Jackson he hopes for a candid conversation. Um, Democrats are highlighting the historic nature nature of Judge Jackson's nomination, quote, the appointment, um, hold on, where we go? okay, the appointment of an African-American woman, of a black woman to the U.S. United States Supreme Court, uh, let's be very blunt, uh, should have happened years ago, Senator Richard Blumenthal, Democrat from Connecticut, said, uh, besides being the first uh, black woman nominated to the court, Jackson brings also other less common experiences, including service as a public defender, Senator Diane Feinstein, Democrat from California, called uh, that service very significant and important. Uh, has been a public defender since Thurgood Marshall uh, was on the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. Senator Mike Lee, Republican from Utah, is among the Republicans who have sought to draw a contrast between the tone of the hearings for Judge Jackson and, and those for Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, Senator Mike Lee said, uh, engaging in the politics of personal destruction is not something we should ever aspire to. Now, okay, let's see here. Okay, she's replacing Judge Stephen Breyer that she used to clerk for. Um, okay, you can read the rest of this. They have a ton of information here at Washington Post, the live updates. Uh, let's go to, let's see, I want to go to... This right here from 
Let me back up. Okay, let's close that out. I need to go to this one right here. Okay, GOP venting. GOP venting. And give us a thumbs up. Give us a heart on this broadcast on Facebook and YouTube. Okay, so it rates higher in the algorithms. GOP venting 2024 auditions and historic moments. So they're stunting. Okay, because some of them are going to run for president in 2024. They're going to be defeated. But some of them are going to Ted Cruz probably run. He probably jump out there again. Uh, Josh, um, Josh Hawley probably run. So the Judiciary Committee proceedings Monday included opening statements from Judge Jackson. Um, Venting session for Republican trauma over past Supreme Court battles runs deep and Republicans did not hide. Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican from Iowa, who is endorsed by Trump, and Chuck Grassley is almost 100 years old. He needs to resign. He should just retire. But he's running again. He's endorsed by the trade in chief, Benedict Donald. Uh, he's the ranking uh, Republican on the committee. He began his party's remarks at the hearing by reminding of previous confirmations when the audience interrupted him. He knocked, he, he knocked down them. So previously he was talking about uh, being interrupted by Democrats, like the Kavanaugh hearings, stuff like this. They kept bringing up Kavanaugh. Kav it, 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 you would think Kavanaugh was blocked by Democrats. Like he did not get confirmed. He got confirmed. He knocked Democrats for falsely predicting that then judge Amy Coney Barrett would vote to destroy Obamacare. He and Senator Lindsey Graham uh, vented about Democrats treatment then of Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, Lindsey Graham said most of us couldn't go back to our offices during Kavanaugh without getting spit on. Uh, and he said this this hearing of Judge Jackson won't be a circus. Lindsey Graham dug back about 20 years to complain about Democrats' treatment of President George Bush's appellate nominees, Janice Rogers Brown, a black woman who was ultimately confirmed, and Miguel Estrada, a Hispanic man who was filibustered. They, they had all these grievances they were airing. They're really mad that they lost that last. They, they're really mad they lost the presidential election. Republicans, Senator Lion Flying Ted Cruz of Texas, said that the Kavanaugh hearing was one of the lowest points, lowest one of the lowest moments in the history of this committee, and complained about the Democrats' treatment of of Robert Bork who was criticized as an ex uh, as extreme and defeated by a bipartisan vote in 1987. And Clarence Thomas, who we know was hospitalized with the virus, um, a viral infection, and Judge Clarence Thomas, who was confirmed in 1991 after allegations of sexual misconduct from Anita Hill. Senator Ben Sass, Republican of, of Nebraska, said, we started down this road of character assassination in the 1980s with Judge Bork's hearings and senators have been engaged in discussing theatrics ever since. Um, 
so then you had criticism of just Ketanji Brown Jackson's supporters. Then you have more criticism of her supporters than of her. Um, okay, so you had Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas, said groups like Demand Justice have paid millions of dollars to try and promote court packing and sow public distrust in, in the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. Um, the group, which is co-founded by Democratic strategist Brian Fallon and Obama administration counsel Christopher Kang, responded saying, quote, Senate Republicans' obsession with talking about demand justice at Katanji Brown Jackson's confirmation hearings is the ultimate tale that they have thrown in the towel on putting up a meaningful fight against just Jackson's nomination. Because there was a lot of, it, it, it was, uh, uh, it's not a whole lot they can criticize about her rulings. So they're attacking people who and groups who are supporting her and trying to say, oh, she's soft on crime and all this nonsense. The group said Republicans demand justice said Republicans, quote, side arguments about outside liberal groups offers a detour from having to frontally attack Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. Lindsey Graham invoked a liberal dark money group that has backed several advocacy organizations. The, um, quote, what, what is it about your nomination? Uh, this is Lindsey Graham. What is it about your nomination that the most liberal people under the umbrella of Arabella threw in their money, their time, their time, their support, he added, I want to know more about that. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, Democrat from Rhode Island, a proponent of requiring donor disclosures and a frequent critic of conservative dark money groups, appeared impatient with GOP senators repeatedly criticizing dark money as the same lawmakers fight to preserve laws that uh, allow donors to contribute large sums of money for political causes without disclosing their identities. Then you have, and we've talked about this before here on the show, you have dark money groups like Heritage Action that are funding the uh, voter suppression bills that are being uh, pushed in state legislatures by Republicans and are being voted on by Republicans and signed into law by Republican governors. So we've talked about this article here from uh, Mother Jones. They exposed this and Ari Berman for Mother Jones, May 13th, 2021, leaked video, dark money group brags about writing GOP voter suppression bills across the country. Executive Director for Heritage Action, Jessica Anderson, said we did it quietly. We did it quickly and we did it quietly. We did it quickly and we did, and we did it quietly. This is Jessica Anderson here. And she was speaking 
to a group of big money donors in Tucson, Arizona in 2021. Uh, it was in, uh, April 20, uh, in April 2021. And she was explaining how Heritage Action crafted these boiler, boilerplate voter suppression laws and how they were pushing them to Republicans and state legislatures and getting them passed very quickly. In a private meeting last month with big money donors, the head of a, the head of a top conservative group boasted that her outfit had crafted the new voter suppression law in Georgia the Senate bill, I think it's 221. I think it's 221 in, uh, in Georgia and was doing the same with similar bills for Republican state legislators across the country. In some cases, we actually draft them for them, Jessica Anderson said, or we have a sentinel on our behalf, give them the model legislation so that it has that grassroots from the bottom up type of vibe. Um, so the Georgia law had eight key provisions that Heritage Action recommended. Jessica Anderson, the executive director of the Heritage Action for America, Heritage Action for America, which is the sister organization to the Heritage Foundation, told the foundation's donors at an April 22nd gathering in Tucson, Arizona, in a recording obtained by the Watchdog Group documented and shared with Mother Jones. Those um, eight key provisions included policies severely restricting mail ballot drop uh, boxes, preventing election officials from sending absentee ballot request forms to voters, making it easier for partisan uh, workers to monitor the polls, preventing the collection of mail ballots, and restricting the ability of counties to accept donations from nonprofit groups seeking to aid in election administration. That came from Heritage Action, Dark Money Group, financing and crafting these voter suppression bills. And now you have... Uh, over 400 bills proposed in 49 state legislatures, 19 state legislatures have passed, I think it's 34 bills so far. Okay. Um, so read the rest, read the rest of this here. This is from um, motherjones.com leaked video, dark money group brags about writing voter suppression bills across the country. And that was um, okay. All right, let's continue here. Okay, so if we go back to this one here from uh, NBC News. GOP venting 
2024 auditions and a historic moment. Highlights from day one of uh, Katanji Brown Jackson hearing. So Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, Democrat from Republican, went on to say, we've already seen dark money groups use dark money to run ads charging that dark money swayed this election. We've already seen dark money groups use dark money to run ads charging that dark money swayed this election. Wait, swayed this selection. We're hearing that again today. He said, ironic when hundreds of millions of dollars in right-wing dark money built the current court majority. All right. So you have uh, the Republican cohort on the Judiciary Committee includes numerous potential presidential candidates, uh, a line flying Ted Cruz, Senator Tom Cotton out of Arkansas, Senator Josh Hawley, uh, insurrectionist sympathizer Josh Hawley, Republican from Missouri. All of them use some of their opening remarks to film an audition tape. All right. Uh, yes, Cindy Cor Senator Cory Booker as well, who spoke today, his opening statements. Read the rest of this here. This is uh, from uh, NBC News, GOP venting 2024 auditions and a historic moment. Okay, now, uh, I, I want to look quickly at this. Um, I want to look quickly at this here. This is from the New York Times. They talked about Senator Josh Hawley's attacks on her today, incoming attacks, dealing with her ruling on uh, child pornography cases. Attacks on Judge Jackson's record on child sexual abuse, uh, child sexual abuse, uh, I say, child sexual abuse uh, cases are misleading. Uh, Republican lawmakers criticized the Supreme Court nominee have taken the judge's remarks and sentencing deci decisions out of context, have taken the judge's remarks and sentencing decisions out of context, distorting her record. So uh, this is from March 21st, 2022 by uh, uh, Linda uh, Q. So Republican lawmakers are misleadingly portraying Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson uh, as uncommonly lenient on felons who possess images of child sexual abuse. Okay, so the child pornography, who possess images of child sexual abuse. During Judge Jackson's confirmation hearing on Monday and in social media posts before the hearing, several senators homed in on her judicial record on the issue. In doing so, they omitted the context of her remarks and sentencing decisions. So she, they go through and break this down. So Senator Josh Hawley said today, well, he said on Twitter last week, Senator Josh Hawley, Republican of Missouri, from Missouri, he said just Jackson has a pattern of, has a pattern of giving child porn offenders, um, hold on, let me see. Judge Jackson has a pattern of letting child porn offenders off the hook 
for their appalling crimes, both as a judge and as a policymaker. She's been advocating for it since law school. This goes beyond soft on crime. I'm concerned that this is a record that endangers our children. Now he is an insurrectionist supporter. Um, and he's talking about, uh, he's afraid this is gonna endanger our children. Senator Marsha Blackburn out of Tennessee, complete idiot, Marsha Blackburn said, you also have a consistent pattern, referring to Jessica Tanji Brown Jackson, you also have a consistent pattern of giving child porn offenders lighter sentences. On average, you sentence children, you, you, on average, you sentence child porn defendants to over five years below the minimum sentence recommended by the sentencing guidelines. And you have stated publicly that it is a mistake to assume that child pornography offenders are pedophiles. This is Senator Marshall Blackburn, who um, just torn to her the day in opening statements. Now, these claims are misleading. In a series of posts on Twitter, Senator Josh Hawley took uh, Judge Jackson's legal recommendations, remarks, and sentencing decision out of context Senator Marshall Blackburn's statements is a further distortion of the judge's views. Uh, in one tweet, Senator Josh Hawley said that uh, Judge Jackson advocated drastic change in how the law treats sex offenders by eliminating the existing mandatory minimum sentences for child porn. As a member of the U.S. Sentencing Commission, which advises Congress on federal sentencing guidelines. This was an overly broad characterization of sentencing recommendations made by the commission. It also omits that the commission is bipartisan and issued the recommendations as a body. It also omits the commission, that the commission, the U.S. Sentencing Commission is bipartisan and issued the recommendations as a body. The commission noted, the U.S. Sentencing Commission noted in a 2012 report to Congress that existing sentencing guidelines on crimes involving images of child sexual abuse, quote, fail to differentiate among offenders in terms of their culpability and result in penalty ranges that are, that quote, are too severe for some offenders and too lenient for other offenders, too severe for some offenders and too lenient for other offenders. Under existing guidelines, there is no mandatory minimum sentence for possession of such material, but, but receipt, transportation, or distribution carries a five-year minimum, okay? Now, production of child pornography carries a 15-year minimum. The commission, the U.S. Sentencing Commission, recommended that Congress align the penalties for possession of child pornography and receipt of child pornography and unanimously recommended a mandatory sentence of less than five years for both crimes. Okay, 
unanimously recommended a mandatory sentence of less than five years for both crimes. The recommendations were in line with a 2010 survey conducted by the U.S. Sentencing Commission in which 71% of district judges polled said they believed the mandatory minimum sentence for receipt of images was too high. Andrew McCarthy, a conservative writer and former federal prosecutor, characterized Senator Josh Hawley's criticisms of Judge Kataji Jackson as a smear. Andrew, Andrew C. McCarthy uh, said, quote, it is not soft on crime to call for a sensible line drawing, he wrote in a column for the National Review. He said plenty of hard-nosed prosecutors and Republican-appointed judges have long believed that this mandatory minimum is too draconian, end quote. In fact, three Republican-appointed judges served on the commission with Judge Jackson when the recommendations were released. Judge William H. Pryor, Jr. of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, Judge Ricardo uh, uh, Hinojosa of the Southern District of Texas and Judge Dabney Friedrich, who was appointed to the district court for the District of Columbia by President Donald Trump, the trader in chief. Judge Pryor told the New York Times that the panel's recommendations were almost uniformly supported by its members. Quote, we worked by consensus and that is the, the tradition of the sentencing commission. He said virtually all of our votes were unanimous and data driven. Now, Senator Josh Hawley, Republican of Missouri, in a statement released last week in response to a Washington Post fact check, said that the other commissioners who made the sentencing recommendations, quote, should not be on the Supreme Court either. And neither should you, punk-ass Josh Hawley. Okay, read the rest of this here. They go through it and, and just refute these nonsensical arguments that Republicans were making today. Um... You can check out the rest of that. That's six pages. Well, actually, it's four pages. That's it. It's four pages. If we look here quickly here at, at, at uh, Cran um, Marsha Blackburn, page three. Mar uh, Senator Marsha Blackburn also took Judge Katana Brown Jackson's comments out of context in response to an expert's testimony about the definition of a pedophile, Judge Jackson asked, asked, asked about the, quote, category of non-pedophiles who obtain child pornography, okay? This is page three. Let's go down to that here. Uh, da, 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 da. Okay, right here. Marsha Blackburn of, of Tennessee. In a response to an expert's uh, testimony about the definition of a pedophile, Judge Jackson asked about the category of non-pedophiles who obtain child pornography and said that she had been mistaken to assume and, and, and said that she had been mistaken to assume that those who possess child pornography are pedophiles. The expert, Dr. Jean G. Abel clarified that it is rare for someone who collects such images to not look at them 
but that anyone who collects over six months meets the definition of a pedophile. Additionally, Senator Josh Hawley and Senator Marshall Blackburn both highlighted Judge Jackson's record for imposing lighter sentences than the federal guideline recommendation. But this is not out of the ordinary for judges. And of the nine cases that law that uh, that the law that the senator cited, prosecutors also saw shorter sentences than were recommended in five of the nine cases, according to a review by Douglas A. Berman, a law professor at Ohio State University. Moreover, as the U.S. Sentencing Commission noted in a 2021 report, just 30 percent of offenders who possess or share such material received a sentence within the guideline range in the 2019 fiscal year and 59% received a sentence below the guideline range. Okay. So read the rest of this here. Um, we'll do more fact checks on tomorrow's show. Attacks on Judge Jackson's record on child sexual abuse cases are misleading. This is from the New York Times. Check that out. All right. Now, okay, so we did that one. We did NBC. We did Black America Web. All right. I want to get very quickly here to this next story. So this is about the Vicksburg Massacre of 1874. We ran out of time on our Sunday show, so I did not have time to get to this. Um, and this is from uh, this piece here comes from uh, the Zen Education Project. Okay. And I, I talked about this uh, in my class on Sunday from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. But this, the Vicksburg Massacre also ties into. Um, Domestic terrorism inflicted upon African-Americans to uh, keep us from voting. OK, this is also connected to this as well. All right. So if we look at this piece here and I'm going to pull up a slide here from uh, from the class as well. Uh, if we look at this, this involves a, an African, a duly elected African-American sheriff named Peter Crosby who was forced out of uh, office, okay? Physically forced out of office by uh, white supremacists, the White League in uh, Mississippi. So let me go here to the, let's pull this up here. All right. So the Vicksburg Massacre of 1874 in Vicksburg, Mississippi. On December 7th, 1874, the Reconstruction Era uh, Vicksburg Massacre occurred in Mississippi with estimates ranging from 75 to 300 African-Americans killed. You had uh, whites who attacked African-American citizens who had organized to defend Peter Crosby. Peter Crosby was a duly elected African-American sheriff who was a former slave. 
and he was a veteran of the Union Army. Peter Crosby had been forced to resign from his elected role as sheriff. Peter Crosby had been forced to resign from his elected role as sheriff. All right. Uh, if we look at this piece here from the Zen Education Project. They they uh, have an excerpt about the Vicksburg Massacre, which comes from the book, A Nation Under Our Feet, Black Political Struggles in the Rural South from Slavery to the Great Migration um, by uh, from uh, historian uh, Stephen Hahn. And it says, more important, more important was the emergence of the White League and the White Line movement more generally in Louisiana, Mississippi. So the White League is another domestic terrorist organization like the Ku Klux Klan. The Klan was not the only one. You had the Knights of the White Camellia, you have the White League, you have a number of different uh, domestic terrorist organizations. They were committed to drawing the racial line in politics and inviting all white men without regard to former party affiliations to unite. They invited all white men without regard to party affiliations to unite. The league was first organized in Opelousa, Louisiana in late April of 1874 and then spread very rapidly. We also talked about the Opelousa massacre of 1868, which was involving politics and voting as well. Okay. Opelousa massacre of 1868 in Opelousa, Louisiana. Now it clearly built on foundations established the, 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 the white league and the white line clearly built on foundations established by the, the Ku Klux Klan and the Knights of the White Camellia, a Union Army commander regarded the White League as a second edition of the White Camellia campaign of 1868, but was even more directly aligned with the Democratic Party at the time. Indeed, leagues were often little more than local Democratic clubs converted into paramilitary companies. If the quote, if the Democratic Party is arrayed against the Negro and the Republicans, the Opelousa Courier proclaimed the newspaper there, the Opelousa Courier, quote, it becomes a white league and no one can object to its efficient organization, end quote. Now, white leaguers surely recognized that the federal government was losing interest in interfering in Southern politics and sustaining Republican regimes by military means. And as, as uh, Reconstruction goes into the mid-1870s, uh, you have a declining interest uh, and a declining commitment from Republicans to interfere in the South, when it comes to massacres, when it comes to uh, protecting the rights of African-Americans, okay? You have a declining interest from Republicans. 
when it comes to interfering in incidences in the South. But they also responded to the growing assertiveness of African-Americans within the Republican Party, which showed itself in the rising incidents of black office holding. Because there's about 2,000 African-Americans who got uh, African-American men who were elected into public office in um, um, during Reconstruction, 18, 1865 to 1877, okay? There's, uh, there's about 2,000 of them. Now, by that time, too, white-line counterparts in Vicksburg, Mississippi, had demonstrated how paramilitary mobilization and quote very definite very definite intimidation could bring electoral success even where black voters held decided numerical sway because keep in mind during reconstruction african americans were the, were the majority of the voters okay in uh mississippi so if anything if any if anything still held back a full-scale white paramilitary offensive it was removed in the november 1874 congressional uh 1874 elections congressional democrats won control of the house of representatives for the first time since the southern slaveholders had rebelled uh, against the U.S. government. So what happened was there was a, um, 1873, there was a economic crisis, okay? The Panic of 1873. There was an economic crisis. There was an economic depression. In the, in the midterm elections of 1874, Democrats went back control of the House of Representatives for the first time since they seceded from the Union in 1861 okay for the first time since they seceded from the union and the civil war democrats win back control of the house of representatives because there is a declining um desire to uh intercede intervene in the south on behalf of african americans In Vicksburg, Mississippi, white liners seemed to commemorate the event. White liners seemed to commemorate the event by moving quickly to complete the work they had begun in the summer. Okay, um, taking back control of the House of Representatives. Okay, the, the Democrats. This time they focused on the country on the county rather than the the municipal government, which was almost wholly dominated by black Republicans, including the sheriff Peter Crosby, a native Mississippian who had served in the Union Army during the war. Okay. Now meeting in uh early December of 1874 they demanded the resignations of all of the black officials and pressed and pressured 
Sheriff Peter Crosby to yield under, hold on just a second here. Okay, so they demanded the resignations of all of the black officials and pressured Peter Crosby to yield under what he regarded as a threat of assassination. Okay, they, they have a typo. It's not threat, it's threat of assassination. Peter Crosby then headed to the state capitol for help. So the governor at the time is Governor Adelbert Ames. Here's a picture of Governor Adelbert Ames, okay? Governor of uh, Mississippi. He was a Republican governor, okay? Republican Governor Adelbert Ames of the party's radical faction, the radical Republicans who were advocating for the rights of African-Americans. Governor Ames turned a sympathetic ear to Peter Crosby. He ordered the riotous and disorderly persons who had, quote, expelled from office the legally elected sheriff, who had expelled from office the legally elected sheriff, Governor Adelbert Ames ordered them to disperse and retire peaceably and, quote, submit to the legally constituted authorities. Governor Ames also instructed the Warren County Militia Company to cooperate with Sheriff Peter Crosby's effort to regain office and suppress the mob. And Governor Ames suggested that Sheriff Peter Crosby should summon a posse for further assistance. Now, Governor Adelbert Ames orders did little to change the behavior or temper of the white supremacists in Vicksburg, Mississippi. But Sheriff Peter Crosby called for a posse, but Sheriff Peter Crosby's call for a posse revealed a strong foundation of loyalty and organizational readiness among African-Americans in the surrounding countryside. With dispatch owning to the churches, political clubs, and other institutions of African-American life, a major mobilization took place. A major mobilization took place. As several hundred African-Americans marched in three columns toward Vicksburg, Mississippi, even Peter Crosby feared the consequences and tried to turn some of them back, but it was too late. White supremacists opened fire and despite some brief standoffs, the African-Americans were forced to flee. For another 10 days, for another 10 days, some young white participants joined by re reinforcements from across the river in Louisiana stayed on the warpath. When the smoke cleared, at least 29 African-Americans were killed and a great many more had been wounded and terrorized. The seat of county remained hands of the white liners. The seat of county government remained in the hands of white liners. And Peter Crosby, who was briefly held as a prisoner, was compelled 
to resign yet again as sheriff. Governor Adelbert Ames called the state legislature into a special session and together they succeeded in convincing President Ulysses S. Grant to send a company of federal troops to quell the disturbances in Vicksburg, Mississippi and reinstall the African-American sheriff, Peter Crosby. But Peter Crosby's, Sheriff Peter Crosby's days in office were numbered as so too it appeared with those of Republicans over much of the state of Mississippi. For the several month white line campaign in Vicksburg, uh, Mississippi and Warren County amounted to a rehearsal for redemption in Mississippi. Torchlight processions, paramilitary drilling, the disruption of Republican political meetings, the harassment of African-American workers, the intimidation and assassination of African-American leaders, the driving off of local office holders and the disabling of armed black resistance and the disabling of all of armed black resistance all of which made their appearance in Vicksburg, Mississippi in 1874. All this happened in one year. During Reconstruction in Vicksburg, Mississippi. All of this were to come into concerted use in 1875 in counties that previously had safe Republican majorities. This was one of many massacres in U.S. history. Okay. Uh, so check this out. Now, this took place during Reconstruction, the Vicksburg Massacre of 1874, December 7, 1874. Now, this is connected to this piece we talked about from uh, Time.com, Time Magazine, that I've talked about a number of times here on the show, and I've talked about it in, in my class as well, the class I teach on Sundays, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. This study right here, and this came out, uh, this article came out January 12, 2022 from Time Magazine, time.com. A new report finds that 45 states, hold on, uh, okay. A new report finds that 45 states are failing to teach students about the period that shaped race relations after the Civil War. The period is called Reconstruction, 1865 to 1877, okay? The history of Reconstruction, 45 states out of 50 and the District of Columbia are not teaching the history of Reconstruction properly. In the aftermath of the insurrection the January 6, 2021 insurrection that I've, that I've said before is a continuation of the Civil War and the continuation of Reconstruction and the armed conflict during Reconstruction to end Reconstruction and reverse the rights of African-Americans. In the aftermath of the insurrection a year ago at the U.S. Capitol, incited by Benedict Donald, the trade-in-chief, many leading historians drew parallels between the violence at the U.S. Capitol 
and the Reconstruction era, the period of political revolution directly following the American Civil War. Eric Fauna, Pulitzer Prize winning historian and author of the book Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution, 1863 to 1877, said in an interview with the New Yorker magazine published a week after the January 6th insurrection, he said, uh, quote, the events we saw January 6th, 2021, reminded me very much of the Reconstruction era and the overthrow of Reconstruction, which ends in 1877 with the Compromise of 1877, which was often accompanied or accomplished, I should say, by violent assaults on elected officials. Well, we just read about the Vicksburg Massacre where the duly elected sheriff was forced out of office twice. Scholars say studying the aftermath of the Civil War can help put in context many of the most seminal events in the U.S. In, in, in the U.S. in recent years, from the brutal murder of George Floyd by police in 2020, to the voter suppression laws enacted after African American voters played a big role in helping. Uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris become elected president and vice president in 2020. But despite the timeliness of the era in today's climate, many students in American schools will not get a full education on reconstruction until they get to college. Despite the timeliness of the era in today's climate, the era of reconstruction in today's climate. Many students in American schools will not get a full education on reconstruction until they get to college. Most of them are not going to college. In social studies standards, for 45 out of 50 states and the District of Columbia, discussion of reconstruction is either partial or non-existent. According to historians who reviewed the period, the period it reviewed how the period is discussed in K through 12 social studies standards for public schools nationwide. In a report produced by the education nonprofit, the Zen Education Project, which we just cited the article from dealing with the Mississippi, uh, the Vicksburg, Mississippi massacre of 1874, in a report produced by the education nonprofit, Zen Education Project, nonprofit, the study's authors say they are concerned that American children will grow up uninformed about a critical period of history that helps explain why full racial equality remains unfilled today. Because we're dealing with the culmination of a sequence of historical events that have shaped laws and policies. Coming from coming from Reconstruction and Reconstruction ending in 1877, the, the collapse of the Freedmen's Bank in 1874 and 2.9 million deposits of African-Americans in the Freedmen's Bank lost. The, the closing of the Freedmen's Bureau in 1872, the U.S. Bureau of Freedmen, Refugees and Abandoned Lands in 1872. And then, and then the reversal of African-American rights and the, the rewriting of state constitutions 
in in uh, the 1890s and early 1900s, imposing poll taxes and literacy tests and state legislatures, uh, uh, passing laws starting in 1881 with uh, Tennessee to segregate public accommodations and public transportation. Tennessee segregated railroad cars in 1881, passed in the Tennessee state legislature. They were followed by, now this is after Reconstruction ends. They were followed by, um, uh, they, they were followed by Florida in 1887, Mississippi, 1888, Texas, 1889, Louisiana, 1890, Alabama, Kentucky, Arkansas, and Georgia, 1891, South Carolina, 1898, North Carolina, 1899, Virginia, 1900, Maryland, 1904, and Oklahoma, 1907, okay? So, and then in Louisiana, 1890, that leads to Homer Plessy, 1892, uh, who gets arrested. He refuses to move from the whites only uh, railroad car to the colored section. Homer Plessy could pass for white. He he said he was seven eighths European, seven eighths white and, and one eighth African. He was from Louisiana where you had a lot of intermixing taking place. We know Louisiana used to be French territory. Okay. And because of that 1892 incident, that leads to Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896 U.S. Supreme Court case. But then you have 1890, uh, Mississippi, the Mississippi State Convention in 1890, where they rewrite the state constitution to impose poll taxes and literacy tests. They were preceded in 1889 by Florida, which imposed the first poll taxes in, in the country. And then Mississippi is going to do this in 1890. This is at a time when the majority of the population of Mississippi were African-Americans and the majority of the voters of Mississippi were African-Americans. And you have a minority population that is attacking the rights, the voting rights of African-Americans. At the Mississippi State Convention in 1890, a new constitution was adopted that included a literacy test and a poll tax for eligible voters. Under the new literacy requirement, a potential voter had to be able to read any section of the Mississippi State Constitution or understand any section when read to him or given a reasonable interpretation or, or give a reasonable interpretation of any section. Quote, there is no uh, used to equivocate or lie about the matter, said James Vardaman in 1890. James Vardaman served in the Mississippi legislature at the time of the convention and later became governor of the state of Mississippi. He said in Mississippi, we have in our constitution legislated against the racial peculiarities of the Negro. When that device fails, we will resort to something else. The impact of the legislation was swift. By 1910, registered voters among African-Americans dropped to 15% in Virginia and under 2% in both Alabama and Mississippi, according to historian Donald G. Uh, Nyman in his book, Promises to Keep African-Americans and the Constitutional Order, 1776 to present. Uh, there's a good article from 
history.com called how Jim Crow era laws suppressed the African-American vote for generations. Okay. So, um, then you have the all white primaries like in Texas. Now that was the, uh, Thurgood Marshall argues this case before the U S Supreme court in 1944 Smith versus all Smith versus all right. Okay. When literacy tests, poll taxes and grandfather clauses, Louisiana had the first grandfather clauses in 1898. And the grandfather clauses stated that, okay, prior to 1867, if your grandfather could not vote because they were a slave, that means you can't vote. Okay. If your grandfather could vote prior to 1867, then you could vote. And this was a way to get around because what they realize is that, okay, so you have some illiterate white men who can't pass the literacy test. So we're going to institute the grandfather clause. So we don't eliminate a lot of poor white men who can't pass the literacy test. When literacy tests, poll taxes, grandfather clauses, and the many other ways to circumvent the 15th amendment of 1870 did not work to suppress African-American voter turnout, white legislators, in several southern states used uh, all white primaries to all but eliminate African-American voters' presence in the electoral process. After a white election official blocked an African-American man named Lonnie E. Smith the right to vote in the 1940 Texas Democratic primary, the NAACP's Thurgood Marshall and William H. Hastie challenged the case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. In 1944, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Smith versus Allwright that the Texas white primary system was unconstitutional. In Texas, for example, the, the, the state legislature gave the Democratic Party the authority to set its own rules. The party determined that it was for white voters only, excluding African-Americans from its elections and effectively making local electoral politics dominated by one party that upheld Jim Crow laws. That was defeated in the U.S. Supreme Court case of Smith versus Allwright in 1944. All right, so this is just just a little sample of the type of information that we deal with um, in the class I teach on Sundays from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. And we deal with history because we deal with the Reconstruction era and, and Reconstruction is critical um, civil war is crucial, of course, but that period, the 1865 to 1877, after, uh, the civil war ends is a very, very misunderstood period of history. And I want to go to this slide here. Just so where is this, uh, on reconstruction that is, uh, you have things like the force acts. And the third of the force acts was the Ku Klux Klan act of 1871. This and, and President Ulysses S. Grant is going to use this in October of 1871 to declare martial law in nine counties in um, South Carolina. The 14th Amendment ratified in 1868 defined citizenship and guaranteed due process and equal protection of the law to all. Vigilante groups like the Ku Klux Klan, however, freely threatened African-Americans and their white allies in the South and undermined the Republican Party's plan for reconstruction. 
The bill authorized the president of the United States to intervene in the former rebel states that attempted to deny, quote, any person or any class of persons of the equal protection of the laws or of equal privileges or immunities under the laws, end quote. To take action against this newly defined federal crime, the president could suspend habeas corpus. That means uh, having your day in court, being uh, having a court trial, deploy the U.S. military or use other means as he may deem necessary. OK, this is from history.house.gov, the history section of the U.S. House of Representatives. This deals with the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. This is the third of the fourth force acts. And even though in even though the Ku Klux Klan Act was weakened in, I think it was 1883 by the U.S. Supreme Court, is still on the books now and is being used in the um the lawsuit that people like Representative Benny Thompson has against Donald Trump for the January 6th insurrection. Uh, if we look at this piece here from NBC News, this deals with how the 1871 Ku Klux Klan Act is being used in the latest Trump lawsuit. Representative Benny Thompson, Democrat of Mississippi, who's African-American, and the NAACP are using the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871 in a lawsuit against Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, okay? Now, this article is from February 17th, 2021. We talked about this when it came out. Representative Benny Thompson, Democrat of Mississippi, and the NAACP are suing uh, Trader-in-Chief Donald Trump and his longtime ally, Rudy Giuliani, for allegedly conspiring with a pair of hate groups to storm the U.S. Capitol and block the Electoral College count in January, which is mandated by the U.S. Constitution. That bicameral, uh, both chambers, House Representatives and Senate, that uh, certification of the uh, Electoral College votes is mandated by the U.S. Constitution. So this is their constitutionally bound responsibility that they're carrying out when they uh, uh, to storm the U.S. Capitol and block the Electoral College count in January. And they're using a 150 year old law as the basis of the lawsuit. Uh, Benny Thompson and the NAACP said that the nation's oldest civil rights organization alleged in the suit obtained by NBC News that Donald Trump, Giuliani, Proud Boys, Oath Keepers used intimidation, harassment, and threats to stop the vote count and cause the January 6th Capitol riot in the process. This, they said, violated the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. Because it's still on the books, even though it was weakened. I guess it tells you something when you can use a Ku Klux Klan law from the 1870s, said Brian Levin director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University. It's part of a series of laws enacted after the Civil War. Everything old is unfortunately new again. The statute was first passed following the Civil War to combat the KKK violence and allow African-Americans to take action against hate groups 
who use force, intimidation, or threat to prevent leaders from doing the duties of their office, Brian Levin explained. Particularly, it prohibits people from using violence and conspiracies to keep Congress members from doing their jobs. The law was passed at a time when the Ku Klux Klan was openly, violently terrorizing African Americans and Congress members while seeking to block Reconstruction era reforms for African Americans in the South. They were attacking and killing black congressmen, uh, white Republicans, all of this, okay? This is why that law was passed. Okay, read, uh, read this article here from February 17, 2021, how the 1871 Ku Klux Klan Act is being used in this uh, latest Trump lawsuit. All right, so this is, uh, this is a deep history here. And we see the effects of not understanding this history in these voter suppression bills that are being passed because the same thing they were doing in the 1890s and early 1900s, rewriting these state constitutions and, 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 and passing the voter suppression bills, all this stuff, that's what's taking place right now. They were targeting the African-American vote in, in uh, the 1890s and early 1900s. They're doing the same thing now, but they're also targeting um, the Latino vote Native Americans, Asian Americans, all of this. This is why we have to understand this. This is why we have to fight back. Elections have consequences. If our vote didn't matter, Republicans wouldn't work so hard to suppress our vote. Okay, uh, you can register for the online course I teach on Sundays. Uh, From the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. That's a 10-week online class that I teach, and uh, we focus on uh, history during that period of time. We do this uh, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on uh, Sunday. As soon as you register, you can watch the class we did this past Sunday. And I do a part. These are actually some slides that, that from the class. I do a PowerPoint presentation. We have book references, articles, video clips. And we start in... Um, we start in uh, 1803 with uh, the Louisiana Purchase and uh, the Haitian Revolution, because those two events are related. And the Haitian Revolution is going to be one of the things that causes the Louisiana Purchase uh, to take place. And France is trying to raise money. They're going almost bankrupt, fighting fighting uh, during the Haitian Revolution, the 1791 to um 1804, the Haitians declare their independence January 1st, 1804. But the U.S. gets 828,000 square miles of land for less than three cents an acre. It doubles the territory of the U.S. at the time, but it also increases the need for African slave labor in uh, certain uh, new territory that the U.S. gets where where they're going to have slavery. And um, we know because of the invention of the cotton gin in 1793 and copies of the cotton gin, this is going to increase the demand for cotton because it reduces the cost of producing cotton. 
So uh, we deal with this in this class here, and um, we go through and look at uh, uh, the Missouri Compromise of 1820, uh, the Mexican-American War, 1846-1848, Missouri, uh, the Compromise of 1850, Dred Scott case, uh, 1857. Uh, we look at the Kansas-Nebraska Act, 1854, founding of the Republican Party, 1854, uh, presidential election of 1860, uh, November 6, 1860, uh, pres uh, Lincoln becomes president-elect. South Carolina secedes from the Union six weeks after Lincoln becomes president-elect. On December 20, 1860, they secede from the Union. Civil War starts April 12, 1861. So we look at the Civil War, Reconstruction, uh, presidential election of 1876, Compromise of 1877. Um, and then we go through and look at history. Reconstruction, Jim Crow era, World War One, World War Two, Civil Rights Movement, Black Power Movement. Okay, so all the we do a PowerPoint presentation. Uh, all the sessions are recorded. You can go back and watch it anytime. We do it live. All the sessions are recorded. You can go back and watch it anytime. We have a text chat, so you can ask questions in class. Also, this class is on sale sixty dollars regularly, one hundred thirty dollars. And even a year from now, if you want to go back and watch the entire course, you can do that. Okay. Next class is uh, Sunday, March 27th. As soon as you register, you can watch the class we did this past uh, uh, this past Sunday. And then on Saturdays, I teach ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. And this class is 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. on Saturdays. We deal with thousands of years of history and what leads up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. We also deal with the 800-year occupation of Europe by the Africans known as the Moors. Uh, classes on sale $60, regular $130. And we have a bundle pack where you can register for both classes for $100. That's a $260 value. You can use this information with your children also. I would say the uh, content is uh, PG-13. All right, it's not overly graphic. I don't do a lot of cursing and things like that. Um, so you can check so you can check that out also we're going to post a link here for the uh bundle pack also as soon as you register you can start watching content you can join us in class uh this weekend if you've taken any of my online classes in the past email me at ahn show at africanhistorynetwork.com email me at ahn show at africanhistorynetwork.com you'll get a 50 percent discount on on the bundle pack okay email me at ahn show at africanhistorynetwork.com uh so we have a special discount for uh returning students all right um also the um power in one conference uh power and unity conference is uh taking place in detroit uh april 30th and uh march 1st Okay, April 30th and uh say sorry, April 30th and May 1st. Saturday, April 30th, Sunday, uh uh May 1st, 2022, uh in Detroit. And this is uh organized by Brother Taki Grant and Sister Felicia. And uh this is the Hopi uh Hopi presents uh the Hopi tour and the Hopi film One Africa Power and Unity Conference, Saturday, April 30th. Sunday, May 1st at the Double Tree Hotel. I'll be there also. I live right near the Double Tree here in downtown Detroit. 
so they're going to have a ton of uh, African Center speakers. Some of my teachers, Professor Jane Small, uh, Dr. Linda Jeffries, uh, they're, they're speaking. Dr. Jeffries' wife, Dr. Rosalind Jeffries, is speaking also. Uh, you have Dr. Mawalana Karanga. Um, you have uh, Asar Imhotep, uh, uh, Dr. Chike Okua, my friend, Dr. Chike Okua. You have uh, Dr. Malefi Keti Asante, chair of the uh, uh, Afro-American Studies Department at Temple University. You have uh, uh, Infodushi Jehutimans, who we've had on the show uh, before. So this is a two-day conference. Uh, tickets are available. We're going to post uh, the link here. We'll get this up on our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com as well. And let me uh, go over this quickly here. So this is uh, come join us live in Detroit. Now you can also uh, register for the live stream and watch it live around the world. Um, Hapi in association with Aket Tours is hosting the inaugural One Africa uh, Power and Unity two-day conference in Detroit, Michigan. You will hear enlightening lectures from renowned scholars. Uh, so the, the, the ticket information is here. You can register for this today. The One Africa Conference theme illustrates that all African cultures and peoples are linked together, either through ethnicity, language, arts, or culture. Presenters will unpack the historical connectivity and confluence of African people move throughout the world. The conference will also feature the essence of One Africa and how it relates to the power in unity which is at the core of our principles in the Hapi movement. And Hapi is the shirt I have on. That's the documentary Hapi, the role of uh, African culture and the development, the role of economics in the development of civilization. It deals with African history, African culture, and economics um, in African culture, African civilizations also. The very symbol of Hapi itself speaks to the power of unity. Hapi is one of the original names for the Nile River. Conference attendees will experience stimulating and interactive lectures from multiple lenses of study. The conference will take place on Saturday, April 30th, 2022, 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Sunday, May 1st, 2022, 12 noon to 4 p.m. Okay, so uh, check this uh, check this out. We posted the link here and um, we'll get this up on our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com also. All right, look, we have to get out of here. Uh, remember at the African History Network, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world. Because right now it's correct wrong behavior, it's not over till we win, we'll kind of forever. And we'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace.